Section 29 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Mudlarks. There is another class who may be termed river finders, although their occupation is connected only with the shore. They are commonly known by the name of mudlarks, from being compelled, in order to obtain the articles they seek, to wade sometimes up to their middle, through the mud left on the shore by the retiring tide. These poor creatures are certainly about the most deplorable, in their appearance, of any I have met with, in the course of my inquiries. They may be seen of all ages, from mere childhood to positive decrepitude, crawling among the barges at the various wharfs along the river. It cannot be said that they are clad in rags, for they are scarcely half covered by the tattered indescribable things that serve them for clothing. Their bodies are grimed with the foul soil of the river, and their torn garments stiffened up like boards with dirt of every possible description. Among the mudlarks may be seen many old women, and it is indeed pitiable to behold them, especially during the winter, bent nearly double with age and infirmity, paddling and groping among the wet mud for small pieces of coal, chips of wood, or any sort of refuse washed up by the tide. These women always have with them an old basket, or an old tin kettle, in which they put whatever they chance to find. It usually takes them a whole tide to fill this receptacle, but when filled it is as much as the feeble old creatures are able to carry home. The mudlarks generally live in some court or alley in the neighbourhood of the river, and as the tide recedes, crowds of boys and little girls, some old men and many old women, may be observed loitering about the various stairs, watching eagerly for the opportunity to commence their labours. When the tide is sufficiently low, they scatter themselves along the shore, separating from each other, and soon disappear among the craft lying about in every direction. This is the case on both sides of the river, as high up as there is anything to be found, extending as far as Vauxhall Bridge and as low down as Woolwich. The mudlarks themselves, however, know only those who reside near them and whom they are accustomed to meet in their daily pursuits. Indeed, with but few exceptions, these people are dull and apparently stupid, this is observable particularly among the boys and girls, who, when engaged in searching the mud, hold out little converse one with another. The men and women may be passed and repassed, but they notice no one. They never speak, but with a stolid look of wretchedness they plash their way through the mire, their bodies bent down while they peer anxiously about, and occasionally stoop to pick up some paltry treasure that falls in their way. The mudlarks collect whatever they happen to find, such as coals, bits of old iron, rope, bones, and copper nails, that drop from ships while lying or repairing along shore. Copper nails are the most valuable of all the articles they find, but these they seldom obtain, as they are always driven from the neighbourhood of a ship while being new-sheathed. Sometimes the younger and bolder mudlarks venture on sweeping some empty coal barge, and one little fellow with whom I spoke, having been lately caught in the act of so doing, 
had to undergo for the offence seven days' imprisonment in the house of correction. This, he says, he liked much better than mudlarking, for while he stayed there he wore a coat and shoes and stockings, and though he had not over much to eat, he certainly was never afraid of going to bed without anything at all, as he often had to do when at liberty. He thought he would try it on again in the winter, he told me, saying it would be so comfortable to have clothes and shoes and stockings then, and not be obliged to go into the cold, wet mud of a morning. The coals that the mudlarks find they sell to the poor people of the neighbourhood at a penny per pot, holding about fourteen pounds. The iron and bones and rope and copper nails which they collect they sell at the rag shops. They dispose of the iron at five pounds for a penny, the bones at three pounds a penny, rope at a halfpenny per pound wet and three farthings per pound dry, and copper nails at the rate of fourpence per pound. They occasionally pick up tools such as saws and hammers. These they dispose of to the seamen for biscuit and meat, and sometimes sell them at the rag shops for a few halfpence. In this manner they earn from twopence halfpenny to eightpence per day, but rarely the latter sum. Their average gains may be estimated at about threepence per day. The boys, after leaving the river, sometimes scrape their trousers and frequent the cab stands and try to earn a trifle by opening the cab doors for those who enter them, or by holding gentlemen's horses. Some of them go in the evening to a ragged school, in the neighbourhood of which they live, more, as they say, because other boys go there than from any desire to learn. At one of the stairs in the neighbourhood of the pool, I collected about a dozen of these unfortunate children. There was not one of them over twelve years of age, and many of them were but six. It would be almost impossible to describe the wretched group, so motley was their appearance, so extraordinary their dress, and so stolid and inexpressive their countenances. Some carried baskets filled with the produce of their morning's work, and others old tin kettles with iron handles. Some, for want of these articles, had old hats filled with the bones and coals they had picked up, and others, more needy still, had actually taken the caps from their own heads and filled them with what they had happened to find. The muddy slush was dripping from their clothes and utensils, and forming a puddle in which they stood. There did not appear to be among the whole group as many filthy cotton rags to their backs as, when stitched together, would have been sufficient to form the material of one shirt. There were the remnants of one or two jackets among them, but so begrimed and tattered that it would have been difficult to have determined either the original material or make of the garment. On questioning one, he said his father was a coal-backer. He had been dead eight years. The boy was nine years old. His mother was alive. She went out charring and washing when she could get any such work to do. She had a shilling a day when she could get employment, but that was not often. He remembered once to have had a pair of shoes, but it was a long time since. "'It is very cold in winter,' he said, "'to stand in the mud without shoes,' but he did not mind it in summer. He had been three years mudlarking, and supposed he should remain a mudlark all his life. What else could he be? For there was nothing else that he knew how to do. Some days he earned a penny, 
and some days fourpence. He never earned eightpence in one day. That would have been a jolly lot of money. He never found a saw or a hammer. He only wished he could. They would be glad to get hold of them at the dollies. He had been one month at school before he went mudlarking. Some time ago he had gone to the ragged school, but he no longer went there, for he forgot it. He could neither read nor write, and did not think he could learn if he tried ever so much. He didn't know what religion his father and mother were, nor did know what religion meant. God was God, he said. He had heard he was good, but didn't know what good he was to him. He thought he was a Christian, but he didn't know what a Christian was. He had heard of Jesus Christ once, when he went to a Catholic chapel, but he never heard tell of who or what he was, and didn't particular care about knowing. His father and mother were born in Aberdeen, but he didn't know where Aberdeen was. London was England, and England, he said, was in London, but he couldn't tell in what part. He could not tell where he would go to when he died, and didn't believe anyone could tell that. Prayers, he told me, were what people said to themselves at night. He never said any, and didn't know any. His mother sometimes used to speak to him about them, but he could never learn any. His mother didn't go to church or to chapel, because she had no clothes. All the money he got he gave to his mother, and she bought bread with it, and when they had no money they lived the best way they could. Such was the amount of intelligence manifested by this unfortunate child. Another was only seven years old. He stated that his father was a sailor who had been hurt on board ship and been unable to go to sea for the last two years. He had two brothers and a sister, one of them older than himself, and his elder brother was a mudlark like himself. The two had been mudlarking more than a year. They went because they saw other boys go and knew that they got money for the things they found. They were often hungry and glad to do anything to get something to eat. Their father was not able to earn anything, and their mother could get but little to do. They gave all the money they earned to their mother. They didn't gamble and play at pitch and toss when they had got some money, but some of the big boys did on the Sunday when they didn't go a mudlarking. He couldn't tell why they did nothing on a Sunday, only they didn't though sometimes they looked about to see where the best place would be on the next day. He didn't go to the ragged school. He should like to know how to read a book, though he couldn't tell what good it would do him. He didn't like mudlarking, would be glad of something else, but didn't know anything else that he could do. Another of the boys was the son of a dock labourer, casually employed. He was between seven and eight years of age, and his sister, who was also a mudlark, formed one of the group. The mother of these two was dead, and there were three children younger than themselves. The rest of the histories may easily be imagined, for there was a painful uniformity in the stories of all the children. They were either the children of the very poor, who, by their own improvidence or some overwhelming calamity, had been reduced to the extremity of distress, or else they were orphans and compelled from utter destitution to seek for the means of appeasing their hunger in the mud of the river. That the majority of this class are ignorant, and without even the rudiments of education, and that many of them from time to time are committed to prison for petty thefts, cannot be wondered at. Nor can it even excite our astonishment that, once within the walls of a prison, 
and finding how much more comfortable it is than their previous condition, they should return to it repeatedly. As for the females growing up under such circumstances, the worst may be anticipated of them, and in proof of this I have found upon inquiry that very many of the unfortunate creatures who swell the tide of prostitution in Ratcliffe Highway and other low neighbourhoods in the east of London have originally been mudlarks, and only remained at that occupation till such time as they were capable of adopting the more easy and more lucrative life of the prostitute. As to the numbers and earnings of the mudlarks, the following calculations fall short of, rather than exceed, the truth. From Execution Dock to the lower part of Limehouse Hole, there are 14 stairs, or landing places, by which the mudlarks descend to the shore in order to pursue their employment. There are about as many on the opposite side of the water, similarly frequented. At King James's Stairs in Wapping Wall, which is nearly a central position, from 40 to 50 mudlarks go down daily to the river. The mudlarks using the other stairs are not so numerous. If, therefore, we reckon the number of stairs on both sides of the river at 28, and the average number of mudlarks frequenting them at 10 each, we shall have a total of 280. Each mudlark, it has been shown, earns on an average threepence a day, or one shilling sixpence per week, so that the annual earnings of each will be three pounds eighteen shillings, or say four pounds a year, and hence the gross earnings of the two hundred and eighty will amount to rather more than one thousand pounds per annum. But there are, in addition to the mudlarks employed in the neighbourhood of what may be called the pool, many others who work down the river at various places as far as Blackwall on the one side, and at Detford, Greenwich and Woolwich on the other. These frequent the neighbourhoods of the various yards along shore, where vessels are being built, and whence, at certain times, chips, small pieces of wood, bits of iron and copper nails are washed out into the river. There is but little doubt that this portion of the class earn much more than the mudlarks of the pool, seeing that they are especially convenient to the places where the iron vessels are constructed, so that the presumption is that the number of mudlarks at work on the banks of the Thames, especially if we include those above bridge, and the value of the property extracted by them from the mud of the river, may be fairly estimated at double that which is stated above, or say 550, gaining £2,000 per annum. As an illustration of the doctrines I have endeavoured to enforce throughout this publication, I cite the following history of one of the above class. It may serve to teach those who are still sceptical as to the degrading influence of circumstances upon the poor, that many of the humbler classes, if placed in the same easy position as ourselves, would become perhaps quite as respectable members of society. The lad of whom I speak was discovered by me now nearly two years ago, mudlarking on the banks of the river near the docks. He was a quick, intelligent little fellow, and had been at the business, he told me, about three years. He had taken to mudlarking, he said, because his clothes were too bad for him to look for anything better. He worked every day with twenty or thirty boys, who might all be seen at daybreak with their trousers tucked up, groping about and picking out the pieces of coal from the mud on the banks of the Thames. 
he went into the river up to his knees, and in searching the mud he often ran pieces of glass and long nails into his feet. When this was the case, he went home and dressed the wounds, but returned to the riverside directly. For should the tide come up, he added, without my having found something, why I must starve till the next low tide. In the very cold weather, he and his other shoeless companions used to stand in the hot water that ran down the riverside from some of the steam factories to warm their frozen feet. At first he found it difficult to keep his footing in the mud, and he had known many beginners fall in. He came to my house at my request the morning after my first meeting with him. It was the depth of winter, and the poor little fellow was nearly destitute of clothing. His trousers were worn away up to his knees, he had no shirt, and his legs and feet, which were bare, were covered with chilblains. On being questioned by me, he gave the following account of his life. He was fourteen years old. He had two sisters, one fifteen and the other twelve years of age. His father had been dead nine years. The man had been a coal-whipper, and from getting his work from one of the publican employers of those days, had become a confirmed drunkard. When he married, he held a situation in a warehouse, where his wife managed the first year to save four pounds ten shillings out of her husband's earnings. But from the day he took to coal-whipping, she had never saved one halfpenny. Indeed, she and her children were often left to starve. The man, whilst in a state of intoxication, had fallen between two barges, and the injuries he received had been so severe that he had lingered in a helpless state for three years before his death. After her husband's decease, the poor woman's neighbours subscribed one pound five shillings for her. With this sum she opened a greengrocer's shop, and got on very well for five years. When the boy was nine years old, his mother sent him to the Red Lion School at Greenbank, near Old Gravel Lane, Ratcliffe Highway. She paid a penny a week for his learning. He remained there for a year. Then the potato rot came, and his mother lost upon all she bought. About the same time, two of her customers died, thirty shillings in her debt. This loss, together with the potato disease, completely ruined her, and the whole family had been in the greatest poverty from that period. Then she was obliged to take all her children from the school, that they might help to keep themselves as best they could. Her eldest girl sold fish in the streets, and the boy went to the riverside to pick up his living. The change, however, was so great that shortly afterwards the little fellow lay ill eighteen weeks with the ague. As soon as the boy recovered, his mother and his two sisters were taken bad with a fever. The poor woman went into the great house, and the children were taken to the fever hospital. When the mother returned home, she was too weak to work, and all she had to depend upon was what her boy brought from the river. They had nothing to eat and no money until the little fellow had been down to the shore and picked up some coals, selling them for a trifle. And hard enough he had to work for what he got, poor boy, said his mother to me, on a future occasion, sobbing. Still, he never complained, but was quite proud when he brought home enough for us to get a bit of meat with, and when he has sometimes seen me downhearted, he has clung round my neck and assured me that one day God would see us cared for 
if I would put my trust in him. As soon as his mother was well enough, she sold fruit in the streets, or went out washing when she could get a day's work. The lad suffered much from the pieces of broken glass in the mud. Some little time before I met with him, he had run a copper nail into his foot. This lamed him for three months, and his mother was obliged to carry him on her back every morning to the doctor. As soon, however, as he could hobble, to use his mother's own words, he went back to the river, and often returned, after many hours' hard work in the mud, with only a few pieces of coal, not enough to sell even to get them a bit of bread. One evening, as he was warming his feet in the water that ran from a steam factory, he heard some boys talking about the ragged school in High Street Wapping. They was saying what they used to learn there, added the boy. They asked me to come along with them, for it was great fun. They told me that all the boys used to be laughing and making game of the master. They said they used to put out the gas and chuck the slates all about. They told me, too, that there was a good fire there. So I went to have a warm and see what it was like. When I got there, the master was very kind to me. They used to give us tea parties, and to keep us quiet, they used to show us the magic lantern. I soon got to like going there, and went every night for six months. There was about forty or fifty boys in the school. The most of them was thieves, and they used to go thieving the coals out of the barges along shore, and cutting the ropes off ships, and going and selling it at the rag shops. They used to get three farthings a pound for the rope when dry, and a halfpenny when wet. Some used to steal pudding out of shops and hand it to those outside, and the last boy it was handy to would go off with it. They used to steal bacon and bread sometimes as well. About half of the boys at the school was thieves. Some had work to do at ironmongers, lead factories, engineers, soap boilers, and so on, and some had no work to do and was good boys still. After we came out of school at nine o'clock at night, some of the bad boys would go a-thieving, perhaps half a dozen, and from that to eight would go out in a gang together. There was one big boy of the name of C. He was eighteen years old, and is in prison now for stealing bacon. I think he is in the house of correction. This C used to go out of school before any of us, and wait outside the door as the other boys came out. Then he would call the boys he wanted for his gangs on one side, and tell them where to go and steal. He used to look out in the daytime for shops where things could be prigged, and at night he would tell the boys to go to them. He was called the captain of the gangs. He had about three gangs altogether with him, and there were from six to eight boys in each gang. The boys used to bring what they stole to see, and he used to share it with them. I belonged to one of the gangs. There were six boys altogether in my gang. The biggest lad, that knowed all about the thieving, was the captain of the gang I was in, and C was captain over him and over all of us. There was two brothers of them. You seed them, sir, the night you first met me. The other boys, as was in my gang, was B.B. and B.L. and W.B., and a boy we used to call Tim. These, with myself, used to make up one of the gangs, and we all of us used to go a-thieving every night after school hours. When the tide would be right up and we had nothing to do along shore, we used to go thieving in the daytime as well. It was B.B. and B.L. as first put me up to go thieving. They took me with them one night up the lane, note, new gravel lane, end note, and I see them take some bread out of a baker's, and they wasn't found out. 
and after that I used to go with them regular. Then I joined C's gang, and after that C came and told us that his gang could do better than ours, and he asked us to join our gang to hisn, and we did so. Sometimes we used to make three shillings or four shillings a day, or about sixpence apiece. While waiting outside the school doors before they opened, we used to plan up where we would go thieving after school was over. I was taken up once for thieving coals myself, but I was let go again. End quote. I was so much struck with the boy's truthfulness of manner that I asked him, would he really lead a different life if he saw a means of so doing? He assured me he would, and begged me earnestly to try him. Upon his leaving me, two shillings were given him for his trouble. This small sum, I afterwards learned, kept the family for more than a fortnight. The girl laid it out in sprats, it being then winter-time. These she sold in the streets. I mentioned the fact to a literary friend, who interested himself in the boy's welfare, and eventually succeeded in procuring him a situation at an eminent printer's. The subjoined letter will show how the lad conducted himself while there. Whitefriars, April 22nd, 1850 Messrs. Bradbury and Evans beg to say that the boy, J.C., has conducted himself in a very satisfactory manner since he has been in their employment. The same literary friend took the girl into his service. She is in a situation still, though not in the same family. The boy now holds a good situation at one of the daily newspaper offices. So well has he behaved himself, that a few weeks since his wages were increased from six shillings to nine shillings per week. His mother, owing to the boy's exertions, has now a little shop and is doing well. This simple story requires no comments, and is narrated here in the hope that it may teach many to know how often the poor boys reared in the gutter are thieves merely because society forbids them being honest lads. End of section 29